The following audio is from Downtown Church, a kingdom-focused, gospel-centered, multi-ethnic, multi-class ministry in Memphis, Tennessee. For more information, please visit downtownchurch.com. Today's scripture reading is from Isaiah chapter 28, verses 1 through 6, and Isaiah chapter 29, verses 1 through 4, and verses 22 through 24. Ah, the proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim and the fading flower of its glorious beauty, which is on the head of the rich valley of those overcome with wine. Behold, the Lord has one who is mighty and strong, like a storm of hail, a destroying tempest, Like a storm of mighty overflowing waters, he cast down to the earth with his hand. The proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim will be trodden underfoot. And the fading flower of its glorious beauty, which is on the head of the rich valley, will be like a first ripe fig before the summer. When someone sees it, He swallows it as soon as it is in his hand. In that day, the Lord of hosts will be a crown of glory and a diadem of beauty to the remnant of his people and a spirit of justice to him who sits in judgment and strength to those who turn back the battle at the gate. Chapter 29. Ah, Ariel, Ariel, the city where David encamped. Add year to year. Let the feast run their round. Yet I will distress Ariel, and there shall be moaning and lamentation, and she shall be to me like an Ariel. And I will encamp against you all around, and will besiege you with towers. And I will rage siege works against you. And you will be brought low. From the earth you shall speak. And from the dust your speech will be bowed down. Your voice shall come from the ground like the voice of a ghost. And from the dust your speech shall whisper. Verse 22. Therefore thus says the Lord who redeemed Abraham concerning the house of Jacob. Jacob shall no more be ashamed, no more shall his face grow pale. For when he sees his children, the works of my hands in his midst, they will sanctify my name. They will sanctify the Holy One of Jacob and will stand in awe of the God of Israel. And those who go astray in spirit will come to understanding. And those who murmur will accept instruction. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, Downtown Church. It is a privilege to be able to share the word of God with you this morning. And each week when we read the scripture and say, thanks be to God, I am reminded every week of what a blessing that is to, in the midst of everything that's going on, in the midst of all the uncertainty, the things that we don't know about, 
we can each week come back to God's word and know that something is strong, it is secure, it is reliable. We can come back to and, uh, and draw from our God who is consistent, who is faithful. It is a blessing to be able to share that, uh, to share from God's word this morning. And this morning we are looking at Isaiah chapters 28 and 29. And I have titled the sermon today, Isaiah the Prophet for 2020. And the reason I say he's the prophet for 2020 is because reading through these chapters feels a lot like the year 2020. This year, many of us have turned on the news, and it seems like there's no end to how many bad stories there are out there. We hear about the outbreak of COVID, and things get worse. We hear that things get worse. We have heard news stories. We have heard incidents of injustice about uh, Ahmaud Arbery or George Floyd. And at some point, it feels like this is just one bad story after another, one bad news after another. I would love to have some good news. And, and what we see in Isaiah and what I think we found that's true in the year 2020, though, is if the bad news is real, it doesn't help us to pretend like it's not there. If the bad news is actually what the situation it is, it does us no good to pretend like it's not there. And Isaiah is definitely a prophet who, when he sees things that are bad, he doesn't gloss over them or just move on to another more comfortable subject. Isaiah is the guy who, if you're inviting people over for a party and you say, honey, should we invite Isaiah? You think twice about it because you know he is not somebody that looks at things that are wrong and just passes over them. And we see that in this section, especially in chapters 28 going to, uh, into the uh, around verse chapter 35. There are six times where Isaiah repeats a phrase, what sorrow awaits. He is emphasizing in these sections Sorrow awaits the people who are ignoring God and ignoring what God has revealed. And I think we can look at a prophet like Isaiah and say, we need someone like that. Someone who doesn't sugarcoat the bad news, but presents it because we cannot grow. We cannot address bad situations unless we can first look at them for what they are. And in chapters 28 and 29, there are three times that Isaiah repeats this phrase, what sorrow awaits or woe to you. And I want us to look at those three and see what we can learn from those. And the first bad news that Isaiah gives the people of Israel is he says, your leaders stink. This is the first main point that Isaiah is revealing in these chapters and we see this as we look at some of these verses. In verse 1, uh, the proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim. So he's talking about Ephraim, the northern kingdom, and he's saying they're drunk. There's a fading flower of its glorious beauty. There was something glorious, but it is going away, which is on the head of the rich valley of those overcome with wine. We see a picture of a people who are living it up. They are in a party, and they should not be. Because notice in verse 2, Behold, the Lord has one who is mighty and strong, 
like a storm of hail, a destroying tempest. God is, is talking here about another nation that is more powerful. And I think we can look at this, and it reminds me of when, when COVID hit, and you could look out in, at the beaches in spring break, and so many people were living as if nothing had changed. There's nothing new. And Isaiah is saying, when I look in God's people, I see partying, I see people that are drunk, and they're not aware that they are in danger. They think that they have made themselves secure, and nothing could be further from the truth. But notice how Isaiah is bringing this to their attention. He is not saying, hey, there's this other mighty nation out there. You need to be afraid of them. He is saying, the Lord has one who is mighty and strong. They don't need to fear the Assyrians. What they need to fear is that the only thing perfect, protecting them from the Assyrians is God. And they are ignoring God. That's what they should fear. And notice how he continues. Uh, the, the proud crown, verse 3, of the drunkards of Ephraim will be trodden underfoot. The fading flower of its glorious beauty, which is on the head of the rich valley, will be like a first ripe fig before the summer, when someone sees it, swallows it as soon as it is in, in his hand. Israel is going to be uh, overtaken as easily as someone seeing a piece of fruit, picking it, and eating it. This is how vulnerable they are. And it makes us wonder, who can warn them? This is a horrible situation. Who can let God's people know that this is the scenario they're facing? In Israel, there were priests and prophets. Surely this is who we would look to to say, you are the ones to provide some guidance here. You are the ones to, to lead us through this. And yet, look in verse 7. These also reel with wine and stagger with strong drink. The priest and the prophet reel with strong drink. They are swallowed by wine. They stagger with strong drink. They reel in vision. They stumble in giving judgment. The people who should be leading who should be saying, we have gotten away from what God has revealed. They are, they are on the beach. Imagine Dr. Fauci on the beach, living it up as if nothing has changed. COVID doesn't exist. This is what the leaders in God's people have done. And verse 9, to whom will he teach knowledge? To whom will he explain the message? Who is going to teach God's people? The leaders are not there. The leaders are the people who should have done this, but they are out to lunch. They are not where they should be. They are not following God. And so what does God do whenever there are no leaders? Verse 11, for by people of strange lips and with a foreign tongue, the Lord will speak to this people. God is going to use the nation of Assyria to speak to his people. The priest and prophet should be the ones who are saying, wake up, we have problems, we have gotten away from what God has revealed to us, we are an unjust society. That should have been the priest and the prophets, but instead, God is saying, I'm going to take this other nation and bring them here, and they will teach his people that they should not be arrogant. The Assyrians will let God's people know that they are weak, and Whenever we think about this situation, there's a few things that, that we learn from this. 
Uh, one is when we look at what the problem with leadership uh, in among God's people was, it wasn't that that they had made a, a wrong decision here or there. It wasn't that they their sermons were not as exciting as they once were, or that they uh, were not catering to the preferences of certain people. The problem was that they had just taken God's word and decided we're going to follow something else. We're going to devise our own systems. And in that situation, God is saying, your leaders are awful. I need to use someone else. And when I think of this situation, I think it relates to in many situations when the church, when the church has failed to address certain issues Many times, God uses someone outside of the church to awaken his people, to say, you need to think about this. You have put this off to the side as an issue that's not important, and yet I want you to think about this. You need to keep coming back to this. And I think there, uh, we can see this even in our own society. I, I think of, I believe it was about 15 years ago, Michael Emerson wrote the book uh, Divided by Faith, where he talked about a lot of white evangelical Christians on the issue of race issues. Their solution was, we need to talk about it less. And I think many times people, even outside of the church, are bringing it back, saying, no, we need to talk about this. And within the church, we can make one of two mistakes. One, we can say, well, this person who's making this point, they're not within the church, they have views that we disagree with. Therefore, there's no way God would be speaking through that person. There's no way God would be using a, a, a liberal academic professor to speak to me. Or on the other side, there's no way God could use a conservative talk show host to say something true. God can use anybody. And we see that in this passage. God, where his leaders have failed, God is using the Assyrians to say, wake up. This is important. And so one thing we have to avoid is if correction is coming from outside the church, automatically dismissing it. Many times God uses people outside the church to correct the church. And yet the other problem that we can make as well is while God wanted to change the behavior of the leaders in Israel and change his nation, his goal was never for God's people to begin following the Assyrians. God had revealed truth to them. They had God's word. They had something important. The thing was not to abandon what God had revealed to follow the Assyrians, but to come back to God's word and to say, where have we gone wrong? And this is where we need to, 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 to be living today. God may be correcting us from so many different places, and we need to be willing to hear it and be willing to recognize that even if someone who is hostile to the Christian faith, in the same way that the Assyrians were hostile to Israel, God can use them to speak to us. And so the first bad news that Israel needed to hear was that their leaders were awful. Their leaders stunk. And they needed to hear that, and God was willing to teach them in any way possible. A second bad news. The first bad news that that God's people hear is, your leaders stink. The second bad news that they hear is, you stink. You think that you're doing very well, 
that you are honoring God. You think that you've done what God has required of you. And yet that's not the case. In chapter 29, verse 1, there's this expression, woe to you, Ariel. And we may wonder, well, what, what does Ariel, what does that mean? This is likely a word that refers to the top part of an altar where, where Israel is making sacrifices. And so God is, is calling his people an altar, a sacrifice. And he's saying, oh, Ariel, Ariel, the city where David encamped, add year to year, let the feast run their round and Yet I will distress Ariel. There shall be moaning and lamentation. What's going on here? Why is God upset that his people are making sacrifices and having the feast? Didn't God command these things? What is going on here? This is very much what I would say when God's calling them Ariel, this is a, a very sarcastic sense, much in the same way in English while Einstein is one of the most brilliant minds ever, if you get called an Einstein, it's almost never a compliment. It's always like, hey, Einstein, the door says push, not pull. This is what God's doing in calling his people a sacrifice. And we can imagine today, would God look at us and say, uh, hey, yeah, keep on, keep on preaching the sermons. That's great. Keep singing those songs. Keep showing up to church in a very sarcastic manner. But the, the reason, the problem was in what they assumed that that told them about themselves. If we jump down to verse 13, God will say, This people draw near with their mouth, honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me. And their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. And this is a recurring theme in the book of Isaiah where God is saying, listen, you do some things that I did command. I did command you to, to have these feasts. I did command you to offer sacrifices. But I wanted more than that. Right in the very first chapter, Isaiah talks about, I wanted you to, uh, to seek justice, to care for the poor, to fight oppression. And here again, Isaiah is bringing up this language of, just because you're doing some good things doesn't mean that you then do whatever you want to do. You don't pick and choose what is in God's word that you want to follow. Uh, and so Isaiah is, is bringing this up to them. In this context, what is more likely the case is God is, is calling them out for you. Now he, Isaiah is talking about the southern kingdom, and he's saying you see this other enemy out there, and you want to make an alliance with Egypt. Chapter 28, verse 15, talks about yeah, God's people wanting to make a covenant with death. And in these chapters, we see Israel is wanting to make foreign alliances rather than trusting God. And so this recurring theme throughout Isaiah is showing you have a tendency to think you're better than you are because you do some things that I did actually command. You, it's the resume approach. Nobody ever puts on their resume their flaws. Nobody ever puts on their resume, I start tasks well, but I have, a, a, a diff I have difficulty finishing them. 
Nobody ever puts that on their resume. You find what you do well, and you highlight that. And so Israel, they were doing that. Hey, these are the things we do well. We make sacrifices. We're having the feast. This is what we do well. So don't bring up these weaknesses. This is our resume. And what God wants them to hear is that just because you're doing some things that I commanded doesn't mean that you're embracing the heart. I need you to embrace all of it. And sometimes the more passionate we are about an issue, the harder it can be to receive correction. I can remember when I was in my early 20s, there was a friend, we were hanging out, we were actually at a pool, and we had grown up playing sports together. So we, we played baseball together, basketball together, but in this instance, we were diving off a diving board, and I was awful at it. And I remember my friend laughing at me and saying, Wayne, I had forgotten how awful you are at anything to do with water, swimming or diving, anything like that. And for me, I didn't care. I'd never been a swimmer, never been part of a swimming team. It didn't matter to me that I was bad at that. Taking correction in that part was easy. If that friend, however, had told me, Wayne, you stink at basketball, I would have looked at him and said, let's find a court because it would be harder for me to take correction there because I had worked hard. Basketball was something I played a lot of. And for us, there can be times where we are involved in something and we can look at the things, the genuine sacrifices we made and not realize that we still have some glaring flaws. There's still some bad news that we need to hear. On Wednesday nights, we've been going through uh, a variety of issues. One of the things we've talked about is a book by Corey Edwards in The Elusive Dream. And one aspect that she highlighted that I think is, is important for downtown church to hear is many times there are churches that say, Racial reconciliation is a biblical value. This is important. So let's try to have a multi-ethnic church. And Corey Edwards studied multi-ethnic churches in America and recognized that there are certain tendencies in predominantly black churches, certain tendencies in predominantly white churches, and many multi-ethnic churches, while we might expect are somewhere in between, they often look more like the white churches. And what she's pointing out is that frequently what happens is people say, this is a value, racial reconciliation, and I showed up. I'm at a multi-ethnic church. Check the box. And what she's saying is it needs to go deeper than that. It needs to go more than that. It needs to go more than just, I did what I was supposed to do. Now let's move on. She's saying there needs to be a heart changed. There needs to be a heart that looks at Ephesians 2 and 3 and says there were, there were Jews and Gentiles in the early church and Paul wanted them together. The dividing wall. Jesus had broken the dividing wall and he didn't want either side to just say, hey, we showed up. That's it. There was some hard work that needed to happen. And many times we can be, become part of a cause and feel like, well, look at these sacrifices. I've done this, 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 and this, and feel like there's no, no work left to be done. And yet many times we desperately need to keep moving forward and keep hearing where maybe our resume is not as strong as we thought it was. This is the second piece of bad news. 
So your leaders stink, first piece of bad news. You stink, the second piece of the bad news. And the third one is your deodorant doesn't work. If you look in chapter 29, verse 15, Woe to you who hide deep from the Lord your counsel, whose deeds are in the dark, and who say, who sees us? Who knows us? God's people are saying, hey, we can, yeah, we have problems, but if we do this secretly, nobody will know. They're, they're try, they, they have a problem, and they're trying to cover it up with the I slept in late shower, and you're just doing the body spray all over you, and it's not working. Isaiah says, I smell you from way over here. You cannot hide what you're doing. And Isaiah is mocking them again. He's saying, uh, you're turning things up down, upside down thinking that you can hide something from God? What are you doing? You can't hide something from God. Is the, is the clay going to look at the potter and start giving instructions? Do you feel like you can hide something from God? And what's interesting is whenever they hide it from God, they also tried to hide it from Isaiah. We, we know in the prophets there were times where kings wanted to make alliances with other nations. And you know, let's, let's not let the prophets know what's going on. When we want to hide something from God, we usually hide it from other people. This is what we do. And it's often absurd. We, it doesn't make any sense, but we feel like we can get away with it. We can hide something from God. The king did not need people who was going to tell him exactly what he wanted to hear. The king, he chose the counselors he did and left Isaiah out because he wanted to keep hidden the things that he knew was wrong. And it speaks to this tendency that we can all have of there are things in my life that I know need to change, but I don't want to invite other people to be a part of my life. I don't want to have other people in my life who might point that out. That's not a good thing. And that very much goes in line with what we often see in our country, which is extremely individualistic to the sense to where I don't want anybody else correcting me or, or saying that, what the sin is in my life needs to be confronted. I want any Isaiah that's out there to be part of somebody else's life. There was uh, an anthrop British anthropologist, Marilyn Strathern, who, who, doing work in the Pacific Islands, though, talked about this tendency that we see in America where we don't want people to correct us. We want them to deal with somebody else. We want to find ourselves. We want to discover what's, what's real in our own lives. And she as she was studying this other group of people, she said it didn't make any sense to them that you would do that because if I say I need to discover who I really am apart from other people speaking into my life, that suggests that the only person who can know the real me is me and that everybody around me only knows me in a really superficial sense. And she said that didn't make any sense to this group of people. They had no concept of an individual who could figure out what's best for them apart from the community. And I think this is where I was reading recently 
with the Congolese uh, theologian Benazé Bujo, and he had a couple quotes that just hit me with this, to where the idea of me as an individual figuring out what's best for me apart from the community doesn't make sense, especially in a biblical context. We need Isaiah's to take what's hidden within us and bring it to the light. And one of the things that, that uh, Benazé Bujo said was, Western societies tend to see too much of the negative side of freedom in the sense that one wishes to free oneself from any obstacles that prevent self-fulfillment. Does that sound familiar? I want to remove anything from my life that prevents my self-fulfillment. Any person that prevents my self-fulfillment, I want them out of my life. And he says, however, in African societies, individual freedom is possible only through participation in the community's life or within being with the others. In other words, freedom cannot consist only in being free from but rather in being free for and with. Furthermore, my freedom as an individual can only be real only if I free the community at the same time. He is saying, if you want freedom, you cannot just focus on yourself and your own self-fulfillment. There needs to be a community that speaks into you. You cannot just hide off in a corner and say, I'm going to find a group of people that only tell me what I want to hear. We need a community. And Bourgeois, he con continues this in, in, in another quote. In Africa, the individual conscience is not the ultimate decision-making authority, but rather it has to be discussed. In the Palaver, the traditional community council, the authority by which the community examines the words hidden in each person's heart. He's saying there's something in your heart that you may not even see, which is why to make decisions about what's best for your life apart from others speaking into it is dangerous. It needs to be brought into and discussed in the community. And I think some of what Isaiah is wanting to target here is this idea that there were people that wanted to hide what they were doing. They wanted to say, I don't want to invite Isaiah into my life. I don't want somebody in my life who may point out things that are in my heart that I don't like. Let me just get the, the body spray and try and cover my own stink. And Isaiah, you can just stay where you're at. And Isaiah said, it doesn't work. We desperately need other people. If I focus on myself and try to find myself... I don't find the, God, the, the me that God intended. I find the self-destructive, selfish me. I desperately need other people. And I think this is something that, that can challenge us, especially during COVID, where it's so easy to withdraw and to, to be in private, to not engage with others, in part because we're not supposed to be gathering together. And, and yet there is so much of a need now to say, I need other people. I need other people who can point out what is in my heart that I don't even realize is there. I, I need a real community, not people that are just going to get around and confirm everything that I want to do. But I need people who can help me to see what's in my heart. And so we, we look at these different things that that Isaiah has, has demonstrated about problems with their leaders, 
problems with themselves, problems with their strategies for covering up the problems that they have. And all of them are bad news, bad news, bad news. And the final reason, though, why I think Isaiah is the prophet for 2020 is he offers genuine hope. We need genuine hope. And I look at Isaiah and I wonder, why did he keep preaching against idolatry. He kept preaching against injustice. He kept preaching against people who ignored the poor. He preached against the false alliances. If I'm Isaiah, I'm thinking, okay, everybody in leadership is messed up. The priests and prophets are messed up. The other nations are messed up. I'm just going to sit on the couch and watch TV. And yet that is not what Isaiah does. He keeps moving. Where is his hope? We can see it so many times. As much as these two chapters talk about uh, bad news, it is interesting. There's good news all throughout it. 28, 5, and 6. We see God, Isaiah's hope is in God. We see in 29, God is delivering his people whenever they were uh, uh, being attacked by an enemy. In 29, verses uh, 17 to the end of the chapter, it's all about hope. For Isaiah, there is hope. And we see in verse, uh, verse 19, good news for the poor. Verse 20, the wicked will be brought low. Verse 21, justice will be restored. The system where bribes were corrupting justice, God will do away with it. God is faithful to his promises. And this is where his hope is. His hope is not in other people. I'm always surprised when I see people describe systemic injustices and then say, but I have hope that people will do the right thing. People created those systems. That's not where my hope is. My hope is going to be in something different. And he, uh, Isaiah looks and he talks about verse 22. The, Thus says the Lord who redeemed Abraham concerning the house of Jacob. Jacob shall no more be ashamed. Isaiah is going back to a promise God made to Abraham a long time ago where God would, would bless Abraham and his descendants and that they would be a light to the nations. And we see, even though God's people failed so many times, Jesus accomplished what, uh, what God's people were not able to. Jesus was able to do that. And that is where our confidence is. We do not have confidence in a new strategy, in a, in a, in a political system, in an individual uh, or individual leaders. Our hope is in the one who went toe-to-toe -to -toe with death and defeated it. Our King Jesus, who died and rose again. Our faith and confidence in God, who has been faithful for so long. This is where our confidence is. And so as we go out with all of the uncertainty around us, we can have hope that we can make genuine change, not because our hope is in other people, but because our hope is in God. And we know that God can build something so much bigger and better than we can even dream of building. And God has the ability to take people who are in shame and lift them up. God sends each one of us out in mission, not because he held tryouts and we were the best and the brightest, 
we recognize we are people who are broken, who have flaws, who have failed in many ways. And yet God says, if you come to me and admit that you, you are not sufficient in and of yourselves, if you trust in what Jesus has done for you, what you have never been able to do for yourself, then Jesus sends us out in mission. And based off of that, we can impact the world around us. God can take us from people who have committed shameful acts to being a part of God's mission. And that is my hope that as we look at the message of Isaiah, that we will come face to face with the the evil that is out there and the evil that is in here, and yet not despair, but fix our eyes on God, fix our eyes on Jesus. This is my prayer this morning. God, I want to thank you that you have given us your word, that you have not left us in the dark, that you have not left us uh, just wandering around figuring out where Uh, how or or, or what we should do. I thank you that you have uh, revealed to us your son. Will you fix our eyes on him and may we follow our King Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. I invite you to uh, participate in giving right now uh, through texting uh, texting downtown church to... 73256.